I was listening to a story the other day about a young Christian man who had abandoned his faith in God. This guy had grown up in a Christian home. He'd attended church all of his life. He was part of the youth group. He led worship. He had then gone on to Bible college. It was a college that he started to study the book of Exodus. And as he read the accounts of the plagues on Egypt, something began to trouble him. For his whole life, the story of God freeing his people from slavery in Egypt had always been a good story, one with a happy ending. But when he read it anew, he saw it from a different perspective. And the story that was once sweet-tasting became sour in his stomach. How is it, he asked himself, that we recoil in horror at the atrocity committed by King Herod when he killed the infants in Bethlehem, but we think it's okay that God does the same sort of thing in the Exodus story at Passover? He then started to look at other passages or individual verses when read alone, portrayed God as monstrous. Sadly, his parents and many of his college friends couldn't help him to understand any of this, and he walked away from his faith. And then I also read another story about a a man named uh, Neugen. He became a Christian as an adult. The good news of Jesus broke into his heart, and the message of the Bible tasted sweet as he read it and studied it. But then he came to the passage about Jesus' teaching on loving your enemies. And that sweetness was suddenly soured. You see, Neugen grew up in Vietnam in the 1970s, and his body still carried the scars inflicted on him by his enemies. Those scars came with grief and pain and bitterness. How could he forgive, let alone love, those who had committed such acts on him, his family and his community? In time, though, all of that bitterness melted away into forgiveness, as his walk with Jesus grew stronger. God's word is not easy. It's not all eating ice cream and chocolate. In truth, sometimes it's more like taking a big bite out of a lump of raw horseradish. The message of God's word is often double-sided. From one side, it's sweet, such as the joyful news of salvation found through Jesus. But from another, it's bitter, such as the truth that for us to have that salvation, Christ had to bear the weight of our sin and shame in a torturous death on the cross. Although on one side, faith in Jesus leads to eternal glory in God's presence, the other side means that those who reject him are destined to an eternity cast out of his presence. And this is what is at the heart of the message that John receives in this next part of his vision in chapter 10. Last time we looked at the sixth and seventh trumpet blasts, sorry, sixth of the seven trumpet blasts, Um, And over chapters 8 and 9, we have seen how different plagues are unleashed on the earth. These are not plagues as we generally imagine them today. They're not diseases, generally, such as the bubonic plague or typhoid or COVID, but rather something that causes widespread devastation and suffering. Remember, we have been reminded of the Exodus story all throughout this book of Revelation. In the first four trumpets, we saw how the natural world is allowed to bring about this destruction, whilst in the fifth and sixth trumpets, um, they bring about devastation of war and conflict, man-made destruction and suffering. Whilst these things all sound terrifying, there's a very good reason for God permitting them to take place. And that reason is revealed in the last verse of that chapter we looked at last time, chapter 9, to give people an opportunity to repent and turn back to him and to bring evil and darkness out into the light. God wants people to turn away from evil, so he allows evil to show itself for the destructive power that it is, to cause people to sit up and pay attention, 
to realise the damage that they themselves cause when they allow evil to root itself within their hearts. The sweetness in the mouth of this message is that God is never not in control and that behind it all is his love for his creation. But there is a bitterness in the stomach too. With all of this comes suffering, loss, grief, and despite all of that, often a lack of repentance. If you remember back to the seven seals in chapters 6 to 8 that we looked at a number of months ago, we noticed that the first six seals were opened, but then there was an interlude. There was a pause between the sixth and the seventh seals being opened. And we find the same here with the trumpets. Trumpets one to six, one to six have been blown, and we've seen their devastating effects. But now in chapters 10 and 11, we find another interlude before the seventh trumpet will be blown. Again, we need to remember that the three series of seven that we encounter in Revelation are not to be understood as happening in some sort of chronological order. The seals, the trumpets, and later on, uh, the bowls, are all depictions of the same thing. They are they're the same reality seen from different angles, or diff- described in different ways. With the interlude between the sixth and the seventh seals, we saw how the attention moved away from what was happening in the world and it shifted to focus on the people of God and their ministry. It was here that we heard about the 144,000 who were sealed by God, and then we saw the multitude that no one could count who had stood in worship before the throne. That interlude highlighted the primary purpose of all of God's people, worship of the one true God. The interlude that we find here in chapters 10 and 11 serves the same purpose, The attention moves away from what's happening in the world and the focus again shifts to God's people and their ministry. As we saw last time, despite all of the suffering and unleashing of evil in the world, it's not enough to bring a sinful world to repentance. When we look around at our world today, what do we see? We see war and its horrific effects. We see a man throwing corrosive substances into the faces of defenceless women and her children. We see a world in climate catastrophe with flooding, drought, polar ice caps melting, and more. We see racism, abuse, drug wars, knife culture, rape, slavery, the list goes on. A list that very much mirrors the effects of the opening of the seals and the blowing of the trumpets. As I've said before, I don't see the words of Revelation as being purely about some future event in world history, but as a reflection of the world from the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus all the way to the day that he returns. The end times that we have been living in for a long time. And despite all of those things that we see in our news today, or 50 years ago, or 250 years ago, or 2,000 years ago, all those acts of evil, or reactions of a creation under the stress of sinful human impact, the world around us still fail to turn back to their creator. Even when people are made painfully aware of how small and out of control they are, they still refuse to turn back to God. It seems that no amount of pain or loss or destruction is enough. Something else is needed. And we're going to see in the next two chapters what that something else is. And the chapter begins with the familiar phrase, then I saw. We've seen, uh, as I say this every, every time, but if you've got your Bibles, we do have it open on, on chapter 10 of Revelation with, uh, this morning because it, it will help you to follow along. So it starts off with this phrase that we've seen a number of times, then I saw. Um, John's used this many times, and it usually represents a new part of his vision. 
It seems that something has changed. Up until this point, his viewpoint has been from the heavenly throne room, hasn't it? But here, the mighty angel of verse 1 is described as coming down from heaven. Remember, coming down or going up doesn't literally mean going up to the sky or coming down from it, but rather describes a heavenly or an earthly status. It's more spiritual than physical. Anyway, this angel is coming down from heaven, so it seems that John's perspective now is an earthly one rather than in the heavenly throne room. This chapter is very much about John's purpose and his ministry. And I believe that he is relocated in the earthly realm because that's where his and our ministry lies. We move away from what God is doing from heaven and focus on what he is doing through his people here on earth. Someone's not very happy out there. It's Jude, is it? It's got the right arm. The depiction of this mighty angel in chapter 10 is loaded with Old Testament and Messianic allusions. He is wrapped in cloud. Now, what does that make us think of? Again, go back to the Exodus story where God led his people in the wilderness as a cloud during the day. Skip to the end of verse 1, and his legs are like pillars of fire. Again, the same story comes to mind, doesn't it? God leading his people as a pillar of fire at night. And in between those two references, we see he has a rainbow over his head and has a face like the sun. Reference to the rainbow reminds us of, um, of God's eternal promise never again to wipe out humanity and living creatures, that the earth would not be destroyed by a flood again. You know, many think that, and have this view that God is going to completely destroy this world at some point in the future. But those some Christians believe that God keeps his promises. Why would God want to destroy his creation? After all, think back to the flood. If the sin of mankind had ruined the perfection of his creation, why didn't he just destroy the planet then? Why just a flood? Or at the garden, why not just wipe the slate clean as soon as Adam fell? Get rid of this planet altogether. Because the big story of the Bible that we've started to look at in our all-age services together shows us that everything is pointing to a time when everything is the way that it was at the beginning. Heaven and earth as one. But this time forever. I don't believe the Bible teaches us that he will destroy the world at all. Instead, he will make all things new again. Then there's this depiction of his face being like the sun. This is how the Son of Man was depicted in chapter 1, if you flip back in in Revelation to chapter 1, where his feet were described in a similar way to the fiery pillars here. And then when he speaks, how is his voice described? Verse 3 says, He called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. It appears this angel has the voice of the lion lamb that we encountered in chapter 5. Notice how this angel also stands um, when upon the earth. Three times in this chapter it is stated that one foot was on the land and the other was on the sea. Three times always means that it's important. We need to listen when we see something repeated three times. Why is it so important that we pay attention to this point? Well, the sea and the land are the two spheres of the earth, aren't they? In the same way that the uh, the heaven and earth are the two spheres of the whole creation. This angel stands on both spheres of earth while coming down from heaven. And in verse 5 he raises his hand to heaven. The symbolism here is that of authority and sovereignty over all of heaven and all of earth, over the whole of creation. So who is this angel? Now, lots of scholars disagree about this, but for me... Surely the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Christ. Now some would say that because he's referred to as an angel, it can't be Jesus. But 
We know in the Old Testament several times that it appears that Jesus appears as an angel. When we read of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, we read about an angel unlike any other angel. And the people bow down to him. They call him Lord. He does and says things that can only be said and done by God himself. He comes to Hagar in Genesis 16, Abraham in Genesis 22, Moses in Exodus 3. So for me, and you might disagree, you might have other views, but um, and that's fine. But for me, this being described as an angel is just another of John's throwbacks to the Old Testament. I think the allusion to God and to the Messiah in this description are too many to be ignored, and this angel is none other than Christ himself. The authority with which he speaks is another clue to his sovereignty. When he speaks, we read that the seven thunders sound. This isn't just the sound of thunder, something very important is being said. And it goes on to tell us that John was about to write down what was said, but a voice from heaven commands him to not write it down. This is not to be part of the vision that he reveals, certainly not yet. This is some future event that is not yet to be made known. Instead, John is to seal up what the seven thunders have said. And this is a clear allusion again to the Old Testament, Daniel 8:26 and 12 verse 9, where Daniel is commanded to close and seal the scroll that he has written on. Because the visions that he has recorded relate to events in the distant future for him and the people of his time. The things that Daniels were given insight to were the events that would happen in the 2nd century BC, whilst Daniel lived in the 6th century BC, so 400 years before. So for John, the events spoken about by the thunders are for the future, in contrast to the events of the seals and the trumpets, which are for the present. The angel swears by him who lives forever, echoing the words of the angelic figure again in Daniel 12, verse 7. There the promise comes that there will be a period of suffering, whereas here the promise is that there will be no delay. The text in its original language literally says, time no longer will be. Now this doesn't mean that time will cease to exist, but instead looks forward to the time of waiting for God's full and final act against all of the suffering and evil of the world to come. The angel affirms that the present situation will not last forever, but looks ahead to the sounding of the seventh trumpet, which heralds the kingdom of God and Christ, the defeat of evil and the rewarding of the saints. Verse 7 makes it clear that the sounding of the seventh trumpet will bring about the completion of God's purposes, the destruction of the evil empire of sin and death, and the inauguration of the perfect, beautiful kingdom of life and holiness. As we move through chapter 10 and into chapter 11, we are building up to the climax of the book at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, and yet we'll only be halfway through the book. We still have 11 chapters to go. As we'll see, the second half of the book tells the same story as the first half, but from a different perspective. Spelling out in depth all of the different aspects of the story that we can't understand until we've wrapped our heads around the first half of the book, which is easier said than done. The good news of these, this fulfilment of God's plan and purposes for his creation has been given to his servants, the prophets. That's what it says at the end of verse 7. All the way through the Old Testament, prophets such as Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and many more were given insight into things from God's perspective. Insights that would be fulfilled in their own time, in the future, and finally at the end, the big story of the Bible. 
But these aren't the only prophets being referred to here. John and his contemporaries, Peter and Paul and others that God revealed himself to are also part of God sharing his purposes to the world. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul uses a very similar language to this verse here. In verse 25 and 26 of Colossians 1, he says this, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Do you see he uses the same word there, mystery, that's found in verse 7 of, of our Revelation reading. So the mystery of God spoken about by the mighty angel is the same message revealed to Paul. And Paul goes on to explain what that mystery is in that letter to the Colossians. In the next verse he says this, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is the mystery that the angel of Revelation speaks of here, and that Paul says he strives to make known amongst the Gentiles in the letter to the Colossians. Jesus is that mystery that God has revealed through his prophets, not just in the New Testament, but all the way back through the Old Testament prophets too. But the purpose of these two chapters, chapters 10 and 11, is to make it clear that it isn't just a few special people that God wants to use, but all of his special people. His called out, set apart, holy nation of believers are all to prophesy to the world about the things that we read about in Revelation and in the rest of Scripture. This mystery of God that Paul calls it and that this angel calls it. This is the something else that the world needs that I mentioned earlier, the powerful word of God. When the world refuses to sit up and pay attention amongst all of the brokenness and the hurt around them, the word of God is what is needed. There is no force greater in the universe than the word of God. This wonderful mystery of Jesus. It is ultimately powerful. When we think of words, whether written or spoken, we have in mind a fairly simple form of communication, don't we? But the word of God is unlike any other word or language or communication. It has the power to make things happen. Let me ask you a question. How did God create the world? He spoke it, didn't he? He spoke the world into existence. Well, who is the word through, through which all things were made? Who is the light of life who brought into the world? Jesus. The word changed everything forever by justifying and sanctifying a broken and sinful world. When God acts, he speaks. His word is the very foundation of our existence. It is ultimately powerful and ultimately life-changing. And he has entrusted it to us. The mystery of God is to be prophesied to the whole world through his prophets, as it says in this chapter. But you might be thinking, I'm not a prophet. Well, let me tell you, if you are someone that's believed in the message of the gospel and you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, you are a prophet. If you think that a prophet is just someone who foretells the future or has some special insight into someone's life, then you're wrong. Yes, prophecy can include those things. But ultimately, prophecy is delivering a message from God. Would you not say that each one of us that would call themselves a Christian has got a very important message from God to share with the world? We are prophets because we have been called by the creator of the world to go into the world and proclaim the gospel, the mystery of God, to the whole of creation. 
verses 8 to 11 of our chapter then leans heavily on another uh, Old Testament prophet book uh, of Ezekiel. If you look in Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 through to chapter 3, verse 3, we read that a hand is holding a scroll that was stretched out towards the prophet Ezekiel. And like John, Ezekiel was instructed to take the scroll and eat it. John was told that when he ate the scroll, it would taste sweet in his mouth. And Ezekiel also says that when he ate the scroll, it tasted as sweet as honey. However, John is also told that that sweetness would turn bitter or sour when it was in his stomach. The message contained within his scroll was both sweet and sour. Again, we are not to take these words literally. John or Ezekiel did not physically start munching on the scroll of papyrus. So what does it mean to eat the scroll? Well, throughout the Bible we read of the importance of consuming the word of God. Now again, we're not going to start ripping pages of our Bibles, are we, and start shoving them in our mouths, are we? Hebrews chapter 5, verse 13 to 14 says this, Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish from good and evil. When we read passages like this, we don't take it literally, do we? We know that it's not talking about real milk or real solid food. Instead, it is showing us the importance of feasting on God's word reading and studying it in depth so that we are practically consuming it. In the same way that we eat healthy food so that it is assimilated into our bodies as nutrients and vitamins needed for a healthy body, we are to feed our minds, our hearts and our very being with the word of God that is necessary for a healthy spiritual life. So why is it sweet to taste but sour in the stomach? Well, for John and his readers, the message is sweet Uh, in that it's full of the hope that God will fulfil his purposes and that everything will be alright in the end. But it is also bitter because it brings the tribulation or suffering of opposition that we have read about throughout this book. It's sweet because the mystery of God has been revealed and there is now a way for the world to turn back to 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 its creator. But it's sour because many will reject that truth. It's sweet because one day there will be a new creation where God and his people will live together forever. But it is sour because we know so many people that will not experience it. The redemption story is as sweet as honey, but the judgment that must accompany it is a bitter pill to swallow. God's word is as challenging as it is powerful. It's not a self-help book full of glib, pithy phrases to help you make yourself feel better. It's a soul-piercing, heart-changing, world-shattering word of the living God. If it doesn't cause you to taste its bitterness as much as its sweetness, then you're not reading it right. You're not allowing its truth to challenge your heart as deeply as it should. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. A two-edged sword is a very sharp sword, and it was designed to pierce through the toughest of ancient armour. If we allow it to, if we eat the scroll of God's word, as it were, then it will pierce our toughest of exteriors and penetrate our metaphorical heart. The next chapter, chapter 11, that we'll get onto in a couple of weeks, is an even more challenging chapter to interpret. It is chock full of Old Testament illusion and symbolism. 
But as we navigate our way through it, we'll hopefully see that behind it all is a continuation of the message at the heart of this interlude. That despite the refusal of the world to turn back to God in the face of evil and suffering, God hasn't given up on them. He has made another way to bring his message of reconciliation and warning of judgment to the world through his chosen people. For now though, this chapter already has much to say to us. We live in a world, particularly in the West, where people are very often oblivious to the word of God. It has, has no meaning to them. God is just not on their radar. For much of their time, their lives are probably just ticking along nicely. But even when they are facing grief or loss or pain or heartache, it's often not God that they turn to. They believe that they are in control of their own fate. No amount of despair seems to be enough to bring them back to God. They need something else. They need you. A prophet loaded with the word of God. So the question we have to ask ourselves this morning, who am I going to take this much needed mystery of God to this week?